twant me, twas the Lord. I always told him, I trust to you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me. And he always did. Harriet Tubman. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. The Our Numinous Nature Chesapeake Bay miniseries is slowly coming to an end. We are sailing home. We went out and heard from a fossil hunter, heard from a pirate historian, I spoke with a folk artist. That episode is not out. Um, It was a pretty intense one, and I'm hoping I get permission to release that one at some point. We went and spoke with an environmental columnist, Nature Writer. We talked last episode with a waterman. Today's guest is something of a local, um, unofficial historian. And I'm hoping to get maybe one more episode, maybe two, And I'm really crossing fingers. And if you're listening, you can go ahead and send a little prayer as well. I really want to hear about the the Tidewater tribes. And I'm really crossing my my fingers to um, have a a member of one of the tribes on the podcast. So I'm crossing fingers for that. But uh, So we're definitely going to have at least one more episode on the Chesapeake Bay. And then we're going to move forward. We're we're approaching fall. There's a bunch of very powerful... um, uh, healer type women that I want to interview and I want to get into folklore and Halloweeny type stuff, et cetera, et cetera. But before that, let's stick to the Chesapeake Bay. Today's episode is with Jay Meredith. Jay Meredith is the owner of Blackwater Adventures and they offer rentals for kayaks and bicycles in, in, uh, near the Blackwater on the outskirts of the Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge. I actually got to go there and it's pretty awesome. A very beautiful area and, and swampy. It's kind of an environment to itself. If you're on the Eastern shore and you're interested to go out for a great kayak ride, head on over to blackwateradventuresmd.com and the link is down in the show notes. This episode is kind of exciting because um, this one came in a little different of a way. In It kind of in the spirit of the old time, you know, folklorists who would go out in, uh, you know, into the mountains and just speak with the locals and try and get uh, stories and songs from the locals. That's kind of what happened here. You know, I, I had no intention of doing this episode. Um, I was just in the area to interview um, Tom Horton, the nature writer, and I stopped to do an hour of kayaking. And uh, I just started speaking with the woman who was working at the kayak rental place, telling her about the podcast. And I said, hey, do you know anyone around here who you know knows a lot about folklore or the history here? And she said, absolutely, my dad. 
I was like, wow, okay, let's do it. And uh, they're a family-run business. You'll hear about it in the podcast. And they had they their family, the Merediths, have been in that area since 1668. So I was like, let's do it. So that's how this episode came to be. And I hope in the future to be able to do stuff like that. You just show up in an area and you ask for, for the stories, for the local stories. Um, let's see, some themes that I thought would be interesting to bring up in the intro is the idea of family history and of tradition. And I've been thinking about this on my own end. So my mother is from Belgium and her and her sister moved to America in the in their 20s or 30s. My father, he grew up um he grew up in the West Indies, he grew up in England, kind of all over the place. He actually lived in New York City for a while as a kid, but he's basically English and that side of my family all lives in England and he came in his 20s or 30s. Uh, I think 30s. So um I don't really have deep roots in America. So this podcast, I'm really exploring my interest to people being connected to the land through ancestry. And so that's why I'm so fascinated by this. So today, the Meredith family, they have been here since 1668. You know, what is that experience? What is, how does that play out over generations? The last episode, I interviewed a waterman an oyster dredger. And he was a fifth generation Tillman Islander. They've been on this island for generations. And this idea of tradition with the waterman, with Captain Wade, um, he's a third generation oyster dredger. And so vocation and occupation being handed down through family, through time. This is so fascinating to me. Um, Captain Wade so he's a third generation oyster dredger. His son is doing it. So I guess he's fourth generation. And his grandson is now an oyster dredger and, and crabber. So that's five generations. And this is so fascinating to me because it's so different than my own experience. You know, I'm not interested in the vocation of my parents. They both worked in IT, in computers. My granddad was a heart surgeon. My uncle became a heart surgeon. My other uncle is a doctor. I have no interest in that. So to me, it's extremely interesting when families stay so connected through history and through tradition and occupation and craft. Uh, I think that's all just an incredibly interesting thing to explore. Um, it almost has, it's like an old world type thing, isn't it? Because it's like kind of you know, in medieval Europe or something, you would take the trade of your parent, I assume, or your family trade if you're a blacksmith. You know, these, it's just very, very interesting on a historical level. And as I'm talking a little bit about family history, um, just this week, I was emailing my dad and I was telling him about some of the podcast episodes, um, all the stuff I'm learning about the Chesapeake Bay. And he told me that we had a distant, distant um family member, um, you know, not, you know, a branch of the family tree who came to South Carolina in the mid to the mid 1700s and opened a printing press. And that I think is interesting because both me and my dad are so enamored by prints. Like I love old prints. When I lived in New York City, 
there was a little shop called Pageant Prints. And I would go there like every two weeks and just look at old illustrations of, you know, botanical plants, of uh, maps, of, um, you know, people and places and clothes and animals. And they were all prints that had been cut out of books in the 1800s, 1700s. So I thought, ah, how interesting. I'm connected through a far off branch of the family tree to someone who was making prints. And my dad was telling me a little bit more about this. And he told me that at some point, well, they left America because they were loyalists. They were um, with the British. So they left before the revolution. And anyways, at some point, he had to come back to England to find a craftsman to work in his printing press. And as they were heading there, their ship was taken by privateers, which were the legal pirates. And if you listen to the pirate historian episode of the podcast, he talks all about privateers. So I'm like, holy shit, my own history is connecting to these topics in the podcast. And then he goes on to tell me that the daughter of this man has a tombstone that is inscribed with the following. In the memorable storm of November 17th and 18th, 1795, she escaped shipwreck together with her father, mother, and infant sister when above 2,000 of their fellow creatures met a watery grave near the back of this island. I'm like, oh my God. I mean, I know, so when I interviewed the waterman and he told his story about shipwrecking, I'm sitting there wondering the whole time, how many people throughout history have gone down with a ship? And it must be an enormous amount of people. And so finding out that there's this long family attachment to whoever this person is who went down in a ship and survived, and the 2,000 people must mean many ships, because there's obviously not 2,000 people on one ship, but over time, many people had died in that general area from shipwreck. I found this so interesting. And even um, it connects to another episode where I interviewed Ron Bame, and he's a hunting dog expert. And he told a really soulful story about growing up in the streets of Chicago, where the only wilderness he had as a kid for adventure was the graveyards. And he told this story and he told about how even today he will go to cemeteries and he will read tombstones and he will read the little excerpts and try to piece together a little life. And I thought, ah, that's exactly what's happening here, reading this tombstone. So today's episode, we are going to the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad State Park. This is in Dorchester County, near the Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge. And Jay is a tour guide for a little historical building that he has bought and renovated. And really, this episode I found riveting. Um, to be honest, I did not know very much about Harriet Tubman. I don't remember what we learned in school about slavery, but I do remember that all of American history in school was so incredibly boring that they taught it in such a bland way. Like all they would teach are dates and documents that are signed. They don't teach you anything. Well, first of all, they don't teach you anything of the dark elements. And they also don't teach you anything about these human stories. And reading about Harriet Tubman before doing this podcast and hearing about it from Jay, I mean, what an incredible individual. And 
uh, again, I was, I, I, I was riveted by this episode, and of course, it's a little nerve wracking to talk about slavery. I was a little nervous even going into this, but I found this episode enlightening and reverential. I mean, it really seemed to be um, about the greatness of Harriet Tubman. And we also learn about other folklore from the area. And as you know, if you've been listening, I'm, I love folklore. And so this episode, learning so much about slavery, is making me really interested to seek out the right guest to do a whole episode about African-American folklore. I've only read the tiniest bit about it, but it is a genre unto itself with its own themes. Um, one quick thing I saw was the, the theme of flight, the symbolism of flight, which makes perfect sense. If, if you were bound, if you were bound to a property or to land and not free, well, flight is the symbol of freedom. So I really want to do an episode down the line about African-American folklore. I think that would be incredible. So I'm just kind of putting out my antenna to try to find the right guest for that. So without going on any further, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. Thank you for going on the meandering ride of wherever my interests pull me from week to week and enjoy this conversation with Jay. So we're in um, Bucktown, Maryland, Dorchester County. So on the eastern shore, and Bucktown is considered the heart of Dorchester County. We're just about right in the center, if you look at a map. And Dorchester County is shaped like a heart, actually. Um, and this is the birthplace of Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad. Um, we actually own the Bucktown store, which is the site of Harriet Tubman's first act of defiance. Um, it's a very um, intriguing story, you know, about her and her childhood. I and, definitely want to hear about that later yeah, on. Yeah. And Dorchester County is, I mean, it's just a great place to be. I couldn't imagine. Actually, my family has been here since 16, like 1668. Um, and all within just this very close region. Mm. So I don't know, either we found a really good thing or we don't like to explore. I'm not sure which, but mm -mm. I'm going with the really good thing because I couldn't, I couldn't be anywhere else. You know, I've got cousins all over the country, but well, whoever your family was in 1668, they liked to explore. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> sure, they sure did. So, um, and also say a little bit about the Blackwater Refuge. Yeah, yeah. So we have Blackwater Refuge. Um, Blackwater Refuge is a, a national federal wildlife refuge. Mm. Um, it's a huge attraction. Um, eagles, just the you know, abundance of wildlife. It's it's an inc incredible place. Um, and the other thing too is that we're also in the Harriet Tubman National Park. Hmm. Um, so this whole area here, it's like, I, don't, I think it's like 19,000 acres of land hmm. um, that is all considered the Harriet Tubman National Park. So hmm. we're in the park, we're in the refuge, um, the heart of the county. So, um, you know, it's a good thing. It has its, it has its disadvantages, you hmm. know, being in a park. Um, but it has its advantages as well. So, so can anyone just walk around? Well, I, I, all the land is private. Okay. 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 So my land, everybody's land is private. And um, in the legislation that was passed for the Harriet Tubman National Park, 
that legislation was clear that the National Park Service of the federal government could not take anybody's land. Um, they mm. would have to have willing sellers. Um, so unless that legislation has changed, mm -hmm. which legislation does get changed occasionally, um, you know, I think we're pretty safe. So <clears throat> it's, it's a two-edged sword because we like the rural country living. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, that's how this area has been. In fact, the National Park is was adopted really because of the landscape. Mm. Um, so this landscape is essentially unchanged from what it was back in Harriet Tubman's childhood days. You it know, feels like that. Yeah, the farms then are farms now. Um, mm. You know, the most of the old houses and stuff are gone. Uh, my house, you know, is a 1790, so my house is still here. But um, most of the things that are tangible to do with Harriet Tubman, um, you know, are lost to history except mm. for this house that I live in and the Bucktown store. So um, we, you know, we have those two um, areas associated with her, which is a big attraction. Not actually, it's worldwide. But as I was saying, the uh, the advantage is is that um, we don't have to worry about a lot of development coming mm. this way. Um, so you know, the disadvantage could be that someday, you know, the federal government could change their perspective. Yeah, know. so I live just down the road from the Shenandoah National Park, and yeah. I think the 1930s, they kicked out all the homesteaders. I don't think it was as treed as it is now. Mm -hmm. But, uh, there, yeah, there's a whole history of kicking out all these yeah. tiny homesteads. And when you hike on a lot of the trails, you can go through the ruins of homesteads. Right. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's a very unfortunate, you know, for that for that to happen. So the advantage is, is that again, the reason that we had the park is because of the landscape and things looking and being the way that they were. So they're not going to, it would be no advantage for them to take the property to do anything with it because what it is now is what it was then. That's what they're trying to present. Which is what they're trying to present. Right, so, right. So um, it's more like, because I, I was looking in the general store window and a car stopped and asked me a question. So it looks kind of like a road trip national park. Yes. Like you stop in different spots. Yes. For, well, like, historical plus, tour. Yeah. So we're in the park, but it's also, we're on the Chesapeake Byway, the Harriet mm. Tubman National Byway. Mm. Um, so all these byways come together right here. Um, so, you know, the, the, um, the tourism industry is, it's huge around mm. here. Huge, huge. So, well, on that note, you have a family business of a kayak and bicycle rental yeah. place. And so I was going the last episode of the podcast, I went to interview Tom Horton. He's big into kayaking. I had some time right. before heading to his place. So I went kayaking. It was the only thing that came up on Google for, for Blackwater, yeah. uh, the, the refuge. And so. I went there, I spoke with your daughter. I said, um, hey, is there anyone around here who knows a lot about the folklore, about the history? She said, my dad. And she said, you know, our family's been here since 1668. So um, I guess it would be, well, we gotta talk about the general store, but um, yeah, why don't, I guess because you're already starting that, why don't we talk about that? So, well, first yeah. of all, I wanna say your home and the general store, I don't know if it's you or your wife that is do, does the design, who has the aesthetic, but it is impeccable. Right, it Thank is beautiful. You. The way you've decorated your home, the way the general store looks when you look through the window, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, can you talk about the general store? Yeah, sure. So, um, and it's easy to decorate your house when your ancestors have lived here. So, 
um, you know, they had sold the property and we bought it back. But, mm. you know, with us, we air um, desire was always to maintain the integrity of the property, mm. including the house. And in I order- mean, if it, your house feels like we're in historic Williamsburg. Yeah, it, right. I mean, it could, you know, when I lived in New York City, I would always go upstate the Hudson River Valley. I'd visit all those historical homes. Your home has that beautiful aesthetic. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And that's what we, I, I appreciate that because that's really what we, attempt to achieve, mm. you know, is exactly that. So, and, um, so my family, they were big farmers here at one time, which was, you know, that was the big industry actually. And, um, they had schooners and farmland and, you know, that sort of thing. And actually at one time they owned the general store. Um, so, you know, they grew the crops, they shipped the crops, they were able to sell the crops. Um, so, after my family owned the store, now they did not own it at the time of the incident with Harriet Tubman or mm-hmm. any of that. Um, but years after that, they acquired it and they operated it for a number of years and then they sold it and it went through several hands um, since then of different owners. And then in 1972, I believe it was 1972, the store closed up hmm. for the last time as a general store. And that's mainly because, you know, the roads were better, shopping centers were being developed in Cambridge. Um, you know, you could go to town, as you would call it here, much oh, easier. Oh, so you're saying until the <clears throat> 70s, it was operating as a Yeah, it operated as store. a general store up until the 70s. Yep, it sure did. And there were a lot of those general stores in the community, you know. Um, even in Cambridge, you know, I can, you know, recall all kinds of little general stores around. So that was, it was a popular industry, really. But then as shopping centers get developed and roads and vehicles are better and all that, you know, people, um, when they go to a grocery store, you know, they can get everything they need. Mm-hmm. So the life of the general store, um, which basically had mostly your essentials, it started to fade away. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in, 19, in the 1970s, I guess it just become unprofitable, mm-hmm. right? You know what I mean? It was just, it just couldn't carry itself any longer. So... The folks that had it closed it up, um, and then some years later, they ended up selling it, um, and then another gentleman bought it, and he didn't do anything with the store, and the store became really de- de- uh, dilapidated. Mm-hmm. It got in really bad shape, because the store actually is about 1820, mm-hmm. um, so the store is totally authentic country store, as you can see by looking in the windows. I mean, the counters, the whole nine yards, so... Um, never had electrical water or any of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So um, it become very dilapidated, and we just didn't want to see it fall to the ground mm-hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. One, we knew the history of the store, right? Even though when we bought it, the Underground Railroad and Harriet Tubman and all that stuff, it really wasn't being discussed mm-hmm. very much. I mean, it was it was known, um, but it wasn't you know people. It wasn't a tourist attraction mm-hmm. like it is now. So. Um, but we knew the history. We didn't want to see that become lost. And, of course, my family owned it at one time. So my grandfather worked in there as a boy and, you know, the whole bit. So we ended up buying the property. And we set out um, on a renovation project mm. to restore the store. Um, we took great care in not disrupting the inside. Um, the foundation was shot. The roof was shot. Mm. You know, it was settling. You know, it was, had a multitude of issues. So we had to do some a lot of structural repairs. 
and things like that. And then, um, you know, once that we got that done, we just operated essentially as a little museum. So we never operated it as a store or anything. And as you do, you do the see, tours. Yeah, we do tours over there. Um, so, are you the tour guide? Well, it, so I have three kids, mm. two sons and a daughter and my wife. So we all do it, right? Mm-hmm. As you said before, we have a family business. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we all interact in that um, industry. And as a matter of fact, um, my family, even today, my kids, they live within, I can walk to their house, mm. you know, I mean, literally walk mm. to their house within five minutes. Mm. So they all live right here. I have eight grandkids. They all still live right here. Mm. So it's truly a family affair. Mm-hmm. Um, the store, the business, you know, all of it. We still have family dinners. We still get together numerous times a week. I love so, that. Yeah, yeah. So there, so in front of the general store, there's this historical plaque. Um, can you tell a little bit about the events that happened there? Because I, well, first of all, I'll just say to be quite frank, I knew very little about Harriet Tubman until very recently. I mean history in school was so incredibly boring. Mm-hmm. I mean, Revolutionary War, Civil War, slavery, all of that was so boring in school that only like in my 20s to 30s have I started, you know, dabbling in different historical topics and finding out that they're all incredibly fascinating. Yeah. So I just started reading all about Harriet Tubman a few days ago. And the plaque in front of your place is absolutely fascinating Mm -hmm. will you talk about what happened yeah sure and uh you know with me it's kind of just the opposite because history is the only class that i enjoyed in school Mm. right i didn't like english math you know geometry none of that stuff right i always prefer history so i will say when i went to college then we were talking about history it was like world war ii history and i was like my eyes were wide open i was like this is incredible. Yeah. It was like finally someone was teaching history to adults right. and not giving the crappy kid version. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, I was very fortunate. I mean, my father served in the Second World War. You know, he landed on Normandy, um, Omaha Beach, you know. So history's just always been a big part of our life, mm-hmm. you know, ex- my family, extended family, because we all still live mm-hmm. right here, mm-hmm. you know. The store, you know, it's um, it's a it's a unique site because it's really one of the very few tangible structures that are directly associated with Harriet Tubman, and most importantly, the only structure that had the impact that it did in her life, right? Because she was born just right up the road on Greenbrier Road. And, you know, back in the time that she was a child in the 1820s and 30s and 40s, um, you know, people frequented the stores. That's what they did. And on this particular day, um, of course, her name was Minty at the time, Minty Ross. Harriet Tubman is her married name, right? So, and then she took her mother's um, name, Harriet. So, anyway, she was just a child, and she worked in the, uh, in the uh, house um, of her enslavers, and she also worked in the fields. So, she was working in the field on this particular day, and they were working... Um, they were working um, wheat and things like that, that, you know, um, crops that, uh, and flax. So there were a lot of, it was a lot of debris from, from that type of work, you know, getting flax seed out. And she went home and she was told to go to the store to get some items for the cook of the house. So as she got to the store, 
and walked in. She happened to walk in right in the middle of an event that essentially would change history. Um, there was a gentleman in there. His name was Thomas Barnett. And he was trying to catch a young slave boy um, that had either escaped him, the overseer, or possibly was trying to escape just in general. Um, but either way, the boy ran into the store and Thomas Barnett came in after him. And just at that same time, little Minty walked in the front door. So when Minty come in the front door, the young man was trying to get out. Thomas Barnett yelled to grab him. And then Barnett picked up a counterweight off of the store, a two-pound counterweight, and threw it at that boy, uh, you know, I guess as hard as he could. And unfortunately, it didn't hit the boy, but it hit little Minty right square in the forehead. And it just knocked her out. I mean, it almost killed her, literally. You know, they had to go get her parents and, um, you know, the overseers and whoever to come up there and try to get her back home because she was what they thought was, you know, mortally wounded, really. But... Um, she did end up um, recovering from that as far as the blow in the head, but she always had um, narcolepsy after that, a sleeping disease, right? So she could be working in the fields or doing whatever, and she'd fall right off to sleep. Um, you know, it was unexplainable, really. But to her, um, it was explainable because she said that when that happened, she would have visions and dreams, and God would communicate with her. And she developed this relationship, you know, with God through that. Um, and then, you know, she continued to be enslaved and work around the county in different areas. Um, she was hired out quite a bit. And then in 1849, her owner, Edward Brodus, died, right? So when he died, he was not a very wealthy person at all. Um, he only had 300 acres of land and a very small house. But he did have these enslaved people who happened to be, you know, little Minty and her family. Um, and that's what he really had a value. So back then they didn't have life insurance and all that type of stuff. They had to depend on the community or what resources they had. So um, they enslaved people found out that Elizabeth Ann Brodus, right, Edward Brodus's wife, was going to have to sell the slaves because that's all the assets she had. Well, the news traveled pretty quickly, you know, that the, you know, the, um, the, the, the slave um hunters or the, you know, whatever were coming. And um, in the fall, in September, actually, of 1849, little Menti decided that she wasn't sticking around for that, right? Because it was common knowledge that if you got sold from here, you would go south. If you go south, you're probably never going to be heard of again, you know, because you're sold completely away from your family. Everything that you know, um, and the conditions were much more harsh down there, you know. So, Getting sold south, I can imagine, was a fate probably worse than death, really. Um, you know, that the enslaved people would risk death to try to get to freedom. So uh, Menti, she decided that she was going to escape. So her brothers, Harry and Ben, went with her, and they set off to go north. And after a couple weeks or so, Harry and Ben actually came back, um, and they— um, you know, Menti was having these visions and dreams, right? And she would fall out on the ground. They didn't really understand that. You know, she would, she was, you know, 100% um, positive in her faith, right? That she was having these visions and dreams from God. But I don't think other people adapted that philosophy, right? They thought that she was just 
probably, you know, wacko, really. So her brothers, Harry and Ben, they came back to deal with the consequences here. You know, being with their sister and her falling out on the ground and all that was, um, it was just, I guess, more than what they could take. The reality was, was that when that would happen, God was communicating with her, and I believe that myself, and that he was directing her ways, and he was likely directing her in ways, you know, in directions that maybe would not be the norm, right, um, which probably made that, you know, her brother's, you know, a little bit concerned about her decisions, but the beauty of it is that's how she did it, right? She didn't do the norm, you know what I mean? Um, so she escaped and she made it, you know, she made it all the way up into Philadelphia and eventually to St. Catharines and uh, Canada. But what she was trying to get away from, you know, was to being sold south, but also it was a family thing. But her, so her family was still here, right? Um, so she realized that she needed to come back to get her family, you know, before they could be sold away. And, um, you know, she accomplished that. She came back, she got her family, her siblings, uh, mother, father, all of those folks. And I think when she was here, you know, she was able to take other people that were wanting to get away as well. Um, but I think her real motivating factor was to get her family, you know. Um, and she did that, as I said, all except for one sister um, who did die before she could get her away from here. Um, and that, you know, slaves were escaping before Harriet Tubman. But that really just started a movement, you know what I mean, um, that um, that just grew, and then people really started associating Harriet Tubman to the Underground Railroad, a term, you know, that she would use, um, and, you know, the rest is history, literally, you know, because uh, it led to uh, her accomplishing these great, great, great achievements. I mean, this is just totally fascinating. I mean, I've been reading about this recently. The podcast is called Our Numinous Nature. And so to read that she was having these visionary states from an injury, like that just blows me away. And that these visions created purpose and they created um, a mission. I mean, th that whole thing I find absolutely fascinating. And as I've been reading about her, I also didn't realize quite how like totally badass of a woman she is like one of her stories is she would be carry her a revolver all the time with her and if anyone want anyone that was escaping with her if anyone turned back she knew her mission was so important that if they turned back they could ruin it for everybody so she there's a story where she like put her gun to one of the guy's heads and said if you turn back you're gonna die and what right because see the thing of it is is that if they turn back um not only was the possibility that you know, that she would be discovered, but people would know what her route was right, right? and her secrets and how that she did right. things, you know, and, you know, it's even said that um, she had opium, right, for the little kids, because if the kids cried, no, you know, that she had to give them opium to put them to, to sleep so that they wouldn't be discovered. Um, wow. You know, so, there, you know, she was, she was very unique. She was very cunning. Um, mm. And that's why, you know, for, for us, the more that we got involved with the story, the more intriguing it was because she really was quite a fascinating person. And, you know, there's so much that we don't know. 
um, that if we did, I don't know that we could even hardly comprehend it ourselves. Um, you know, and we know what we know simply because of Sarah Bradford and other, you know, biographers and you know some of the stories that she told. But she really didn't dive deep into her life per mm. se. Um, so it would have to be fascinating. And the thing for me is, you know, for for me because I've lived here, <clears throat> is that we know this area around mm. here. And, you know, we have what's called Greenbrier Swamp. Hmm. And Greenbrier Swamp, you know, even local people, you don't go in Greenbrier Swamp, right? It's just a place that there's, you know, there's a lot of legends and myths, right, about people in Greenbrier Swamp. And, you know, living here my whole life, even myself, and I'm not even, you know, I'm not really a person that, you know, that goes around believing a lot of that stuff. I don't, you know, think that, you know, there's ghosts walking around and all that. I believe in spiritual things. But, you know, even myself, you know, at, at night, you don't go in Greenbrier Swamp, right? Mm. Um, so to think that she did that, and I really think— So that was her <coughs> first hide, hideaway from here? Well, she would have had to go through probably Greenbrier Swamp. Well, I wanted to ask about that. because yeah. So last night I um, camped out in Martinek, uh, state park mm -hmm. and first of all that was the sweatiest night of camping in my entire life is so goddamn hot yeah but i was just actually thinking about what we would talk about today and thinking about navigating at night and like how got you know pre obviously pre headlamps you know how the f are you navigating at night and it, it, i just found like i was just in awe of thinking about um, what that journey would have been like for well, her and, and other groups of people. Absolutely. And it, you know, it had to be, I mean, it had to be incredible, but it also had to be incredibly scary, oh right? Oh my God. Because if you think about it, you know, and if you think about Harriet Tubman herself, I mean, just put it in perspective that, you know, she was only five foot tall, right? Mm. She was illiterate. Mm. She was black. She was enslaved. Mm. She was a woman, mm. you know what I mean? So the odds were against her, mm. right? In every way. Um, you know, but for her to achieve this stuff. So she had to do things that people would not do. Mm. And that would be, you know, going through the swamp possibly. Or it may have been other methods. She may have, you know, went up the road. I, we're not sure. And that is the thing about it, which makes it so intriguing, is because, you know, you wonder how she did it, right? And, and, it, I, and I read that she would mainly go in winter because less people would be out. Right. So yeah. that I found fascinating. Yeah. And she would use the waterways, right? So, you know, we're certified by the National Park Service and we do underground railroad tours and we do that by water, right? And wow. the reason is, is that people can get out on the local waterways, the Transquaking, the Chickamacomico. Um, Those these, are rivers? Yeah. Yeah. And they can sort of experience that same environment that they experience. You know, you drive down the road, you see the fields and all that kind of stuff, which is the same that she would have seen. But seeing it from the water is a whole different perspective, right? That's so, incredible. Yeah. So we got certified in order to do that. To do and it is incredible. historical <laughs> boat tours? Yes. And we do it by kayak, right? Oh, I want to come for yeah, that. Yeah. It's, and, and so uh, when I did a podcast episode with an herbalist and um, just kind of synchronis synchronistically, we started talking about that old Appalachian song. Um, uh, the one um, down to the river to pray. Mm -hmm. yep. And so then I started studying it and there's different um, origin stories for that song. But one of them is that it might be um, uh, African-American spiritual and it might, might be a coded song 
to help people escape. Um, but one thing I learned that I had no idea was that often waterways were used to walk through because they'd be being chased by dogs. Yeah, they'd, by absolutely. Ha- they'd have hounds coming after them. Right. So is that probably a reason why they'd be using those waterways too? Uh, yeah, I would certainly think so. Well, I, I think that that, uh, that could have very likely mm. been a reason, you know, use the waterway because they are using dogs or whatever. And it's probably faster. But that's right? the key thing around here, at least let's just say for, you know, the Eastern shore of Maryland. Um, we have more water than we have land, right? So I think that they use the waterways because, for one, you know, when you think about um, people that are enslaved, you automatically, your vision goes to field picking cotton, right? Mm. Well, we didn't have cotton here, right? We had crops. But it's still, you know, you, you envision these people working out in these fields. But they worked on the water as well, right? Because around here, the water was a, it was a huge co- commerce. I mean, it was, you know, oystering and crabbing you know, in the shipping industry, right? And I read, I read, people did that. I read that, <laughs> you know, I'm sure she did not enjoy it, but I find it interesting because of my own personal interests. But I found out that she, one of her jobs was to check muskrat traps. Yeah. And I do a little trapping. So I I just said, wow, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Well, and that, it is very interesting. And back to her story, you know, after she was hit in the head and injured, um, she was not, she, they used her in a different fashion because they kind of thought that she was rebellious, right? And she had mm. these sleeping spells. So when they, you know, had to hire somebody out, it was her, right? She mm. was the first one. Um, and they did, they used her for muskrat, uh, muskrating, you know, in mm. these swamps and woods. Um, they hired her out to different areas. So the beauty of that was she learned the swamp and the marsh, right? Oh, wow. So she it would later be <laughs> used. Exactly wild. right. And wow. when they hired her out to different areas and different counties, she's learning she, the environment. She learned the environment and she probably met people, right? So from the time of the incident of the blow in the head, she began, and she probably was not even aware of it, right? But she began this learning curve, right? That in the fall of 1849, all of that would come together. You know what I mean? So she knew the swamps and marshes. She knew the area. She probably knew people that were sympathetic that she could use, you know. Um, you know, so all of that come together mm-hmm. for her to be able to do these great tasks. Can you talk a little bit about the Underground Railroad here specifically? Because I only know about it on a surface level. So what? how did that work? And how did would she have operated through that. Yeah, well, I mean, it worked. I mean, I guess essentially it worked here as it did most places, you know. Um, the one unique thing about Dorchester County mm-hmm. that's very unique to any other slave holding area. Um, in fact, Maryland is un- unique in itself. But in Dorchester County um, in the 1840s, 50s, there were about 4,000 enslaved people in this county. Mm-hmm. But there were also about 4,000 free African-Americans. I read that. Yeah. And, and her that, husband yeah, was, was her free. husband was John Tubman, and he was a free man. Um, so, you know, it was a whole different dynamic because if you went south, very few African-Americans were free, mm. right? But here, there were. It was a 50-50 ratio. Mm. So an enslaved man or woman could marry a free man or woman. Um, you know, they actually had jobs, probably the lowest on the totem pole as far as the quality of work, but they did, right? <clears throat> so they could, there was more movement and more freedom of movement, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Because half of the African-American population were free, so they could move about. And I think that 
that probably was a big advantage, right, hmm. to um, to Harriet Tubman and other people escaping. Hmm. Um, that you know, there there was some freedom of movement of people, hmm. but the downside is, I think, is that if you were caught helping somebody escape. Hmm. then, you know, the consequences would have been severe for you as it would have been for the enslaved people. Hmm. You know, there's a Reverend Samuel Green, you know, that allegedly um, helped slaves escape. Um, he lived in East New Market. And Reverend Green, <clears throat> he, um, they never could catch him, right, helping anyone escape. But they felt confident that he was doing it, right, because hmm. he had a connection with, I guess, William Still in Philadelphia or whoever, and they knew Samuel Green was part of this, right? Um, so when they went to his house um, to to try to, I guess, um, you know, find evidence of that, they found a book that he had, okay? And the book was called Uncle Tom's Cabin, okay? Mm-hmm. That picture right there depicts mm-hmm. Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, so they found that book. Well, <clears throat> they took him to court. Mm-hmm. And they give him a 10-year prison sentence mm-hmm. for possessing that book because mm-hmm. it was illegal to possess the book. So they could not wow. get him on helping people escape, right? But they were able to get him on possessing that book. So he It's like to- when they charge mafia people. They, like, charge you for tax evasion as exactly. opposed to all the people you've killed. Yeah, exactly right. So they get you how they can get you. Get you. Get now, you. as it turned out, um, later on, he did not serve that entire sentence. Um, his term was commuted after the uh, the Civil War and also, you know, he was, you know, allowed to go free. But, um, you know, so it's, but it's an intriguing story, right? Mm. To the depth that you people would go to, to try to figure out who is part of this mm. escape plan. And, you know, so I think in Dorchester County, having that 50-50 ratio was definitely an advantage to people. So she probably traveled by night with the little groups of people. And then every once in a while, they would stay at like an, someone who was a sympathizer, or abolitionist. They would <clears throat> Absolutely. stay at their yes. house. Yeah. Okay. And I think that was fairly common practice, um, you know, for people on the Underground Railroad, right? There were certain people, abolitionists, you know, that they could stop and maybe get food or, mm. um, yeah, you know, wow. there's a place food. up in Preston um, that's a known site, um, mm. you know, for that. So, you know, they, there, were, um, there were people trying to help out, you know, along the way. So if not, I, I don't think, I'm not sure how they could accomplish it. So I read, it's kind of tragic, but I read that she came back to get her husband and he got, he was remarried. Yeah, right. That well, must see, have been a real pisser for Yeah, her. right. Exactly. So, you know, she did, she came back to get him, but he was a free man. Right. Right. So if she, if he would have left with her, right, that, well, first off, she had been gone for a while. So he kind of figured she was, you know, out of his life. So he mm-hmm. did remarry. Then she comes back, you know, and he's like, well, I'm, you know, I've already remarried and la, la, la. <clears throat> but, you know, he wasn't going to leave with her initially because then he would be a fugitive. Right mm. now in Dorchester County, he was not a fugitive. Mm. But later on in his life, he actually got killed in a duel. I've read that. Yeah. Yep. He got killed and just not far from here. What so. would have been the punishment? being returned would they be killed i would expect that you would be possibly you know you could have been whipped but i Mm. I think that what would happen is is that you would lose your freedom right that you would become enslaved yourself and you would have to serve if you were free for for her husband exactly right Mm -hmm. so you would you know a free person if they were caught 
you know, doing whatever infraction, you know what I mean? It may not even be helping somebody escape. It could be whatever infraction, you know, that they could possibly commit that their punishment, you know, could be imprisonment or it could be that you would have to serve as a slave, right, for a certain term, you know, so. So how did the 50% of the free free black community, how did they find themselves in that situation? Because I have to imagine there must have been some resentment, you know, if if you're being... Uh, classified by, you know, skin and half of the people are free and half aren't. There must be a resentment within that community. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know that it was. How a, did they even get free? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I guess that, you know, people, I think for one thing, you know, Maryland was a, a border state, right? Hmm. So Maryland had to keep the entire population satisfied. So, um, oh, you mean bordered like half in the south, half in the yeah, it was north? you know, well, it was a border state, so it was an important, it was an important state, right? Because if Maryland, um, you know, during the time of the Civil War, as an example, if Maryland would have succeeded from the Union, right, then they'd the, be the first to get their asses kicked. Yeah, well, the Confederacy then would have Washington and Baltimore, hmm. right? So Maryland was a very important state. Hmm. Um, so, and, and this, you know, isn't directly to your question because this was during the Civil War, but. You know, Maryland, um, uh, the legislature wanted to succeed. And Thomas Holliday Hicks, who was the Maryland governor at the time from Dorchester County, who was a slave owner himself, mm. right? He ended up actually locking up part of the legislative branch in order to keep them from meeting so that they could not succeed, mm. you know, because. Lincoln pleaded with Holiday Hicks, you know, that we have to preserve the Union. If Maryland breaks away, the South will win, right? Mm. The South would win the war because Maryland was just too important. Mm. Um, and I think to go back prior to that, it was probably the same kind of theory, you know, is that um, Maryland was the most northern, southern state, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, and I think that, you know, there were, uh, Maryland was very divided in their beliefs. So there were a lot of people that thought, you know, slavery was a tragic, um, injustice and other people that said it's a necessary evil. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah, I saw the Quakers were a large group of people who were for the abolition. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I think that Maryland, you know, had this, had this 50, 50 ratio to try to satisfy both sides. Mm, right. So to speak. people that did not want to have their people enslaved that they could free them, but these enslaved people would not be captured by, you know, somebody else and enslaved. Mm, so mm. Maryland would allow African-American people to, um, to be free like that. Mm. And, um, I think that, you know, Eastern shore really was, um, the most agriculture and stuff like that was mm -hmm. on the Eastern shore. So I would think that most of the, um, you know, enslaved people probably lived on the Eastern shore and, um, you know, so it fell into that type of situation. And I don't think there was any animosity between mm -hmm. people because, mm -hmm. you know, of the African-American community, because I think it was a, an advantage, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because if you're free, then you may be able to help a person that doesn't mm. have those privileges. You, you know have what the I mean? possibility with, of becoming, you know, well, mm. with clothes or mm. with food or just mm. help or, you know, what money, right? I because wonder could, how her marriage would have worked. Like, could she spend the night over at her yeah. husband's house? Yeah, she. Wow. Did, that's it's known that that would happen. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Very fascinating. Because you know the thing of it is too. Back then, 
the slaves were escaping, but mm. not, it, it wasn't a big thing, right? Mm. It was kind of rare. You know, I'm mm. talking about, you know, in the 1830s and 40s. And, you know, it's that when it became a big topic, you know, the mm. cruelty and the injustice of slavery that, you know, began, people really began to push that. Um, subsequently, which led to, you know, the Civil War, um, mm. or at least that was one of the, the causes, you know, of the Civil War. So, um, but yeah, there was that freedom of movement so they could say, and if you, if, if um, the woman was free, right, and she had children, her children were born free. But if she was enslaved, her children would be born enslaved. So if you were enslaved man, yeah. right, so if you were enslaved man, um, and you were married to a free black woman and you had children, your children would be born free. Mm. So, of course, consequently, the other way, yeah. if you were enslaved, your children would be born enslaved. Mm. So it was a very complicated dynamic. God, yeah. You know? And what was her affiliation with the house since you're so close to the Yeah, so, um, so she did not have direct affiliation with this house per mm. se, but the you know, enslaved people, they did not work for just their enslaver. You mm. know what I mean? So they would work, you would have a, an overseer in the area. And, mm. you know, as an example, Thomas Barnett, you know, he was an overseer. So he wasn't necessarily an overseer for one particular family. Um, he was an overseer for the area, mm. right? <clears throat> so these farmers, I think, you know, these enslaved people would be, you know, put together and then they would work these various farms and fields. Mm. So I'm sure that, you know, sh these fields that, um, you know, that surround this house, I'm sure that she, you know, wow. worked all these fields, you know, with wow. other people. So Wow. How does it feel to be living inside of that history? Um, well, you know, I tell you, it's it's um it's very it's been a very interesting thing, mm. honestly. And, you know, it's just it wasn't we didn't set out. Mm -hmm to live that history or to be a part of it, but because of our ownership of the store, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, our knowledge of the area, mm -hmm. we've become an integral part mm. of the story, you know, mm. because we do um, help promote it. We do, um, we don't charge anything for people to come to the store, as an mm. example. Um, you know, we do all that free of charge because we want people to come here to experience that store. And we have people from all over the world coming here. You wow. Know, the State Visitor Center, um, you know, just right up the road, we were involved with that. So, um, you know, the Perriott Tubman, um, the trails and the Underground mm. Railroad Network to Freedom and stuff, you know, we've been fortunate to be involved in helping to develop some of that stuff. So, Do you feel the ghost or presence of any of anybody? <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you, you know, I don't feel the ghost of Harriet Tubman or mm. anything like that, but... You know, when you go outside here at night, I mean, Bucktown is a very rural area, right? And, you know, we don't have yard lights and mm. all that kind of stuff. So when you go out at night, um, you know, I think anybody that says that you don't occasionally look over your back mm. is not being honest, right? Mm. You know, now, I don't have any fear of going outside, but you you, you just, you can, you you know, you know what I mean? Mm. I mean, it's it's such a fascinating history that's here mm. and plus not only with that just a lot of the you know you have um uh, you know the um um 
various types of folklore, right? I got to hear it. You know, the things that, you know, that ha- Big Liz as an example, you know. You know, as the story goes, um, so Big Liz was, she was um, enslaved um, and her owner was very wealthy. And coming up into the Civil War, you know, he was afraid that the North would come and take all of his possessions and, you know, whatever. So he took um, Big Liz, his enslaved woman, out to the woods and he had her bury, uh, dig a deep hole, right? And then to put his gold in his treasure. And then once she did that and cover it back up, he took his sword out and cut off her head because he didn't want anybody to know where his treasure was buried, right? So, you know, the legend goes that Big Liz walks around carrying her head. And there's a bridge right up the road here. It's on DeCourcy Bridge Road that the legend is if you go to DeCourcy Bridge Road and you stop and you blink your lights and you blow your horn, that you will see Big Liz. And there's a lot of people that are 100% convinced that they've seen Big Liz. There's a lot of people that won't even do that, right? It's just like, no way, I'm not doing that. And, you know, for one thing of it is living here, there's marsh gases and different things like that that could attribute to some of these people seeing this kind of stuff. Marsh gas, it's actually, uh, marsh gas is is just that. It's like a, uh, you know, um, um, methane gas. And it, burn somehow i'm not sure and if you go in these marshes you can see these methane marsh gases being lit and moving around and i'm not sure of the theory behind it you know and all that maybe it is big list but um you know it's a legend that a lot of younger people you know go down to the Corsi bridge road as a matter of fact so you know myself um my son was born on halloween just so happened right so my wife, she's like, I'm not having my child on Halloween. I'm like, you shouldn't say that because, you know, sure enough, he was born on Halloween. So, you know, we would have these Halloween parties and we would um, have all the kids come down, right? And we would load them in the truck. And myself and my brother-in-law, we would go down to the bridge in advance of that and we would hide under the bridge. So then my wife would bring these kids down there, you know, and blow the horn and all that. And then we would jump out, right? And scare them to death. But the reality of it is, it was freaking creepy. You know what I mean? I mean, you go down there, and now we're at the bridge, you know, and, you know, we're trying to play this joke on people. And it's almost like, you know, geez, I hope we don't become the joke here because this is, this is you know, it's spooky. It's spooky down there. It really is. So, you know, you have that. In fact, you know, I have a friend of mine that... Um, worked for the National Wildlife Refuge, good friend. And this person has lived here his entire life. And, um, you know, he was telling me about a story that he was in the swamp, right, Um, doing work. And he got to a place that he just had never been before in the swamp. And he said just something completely overtook him, you know. And, I mean, Keith, is he's a big old boy, right? Um, you know, so, you know, old country guy, right, that's lived here. I mean, he's not, you know, somebody easily spooked. But he said, you know, when he got back in that swamp and he got to this area, it was just something about that that just scared him to death. He said, you know, and he got come out and he was like, I will never go back there like that again, ever. 
So, you know, um, there's something about that swamp. There's a legend, actually, another legend, that there was a ship coming up the Transquake, and this is back in the mid-19th century, you know, 18-whatever, 30s, 40s, whenever it was. So the ship quietly came up the Transquaking River, okay? And, you know, legend has it that, you know, it was very mysterious. And when it got up into this area, it docked up, and these people unloaded this cargo and buried it, okay? And um, they drove a spike in a tree in order to mark it and uh, mark the location for them. And then they left, and the story is that they never came back for it, that, you know, the ship was lost at sea or whatever happened to it. But there was a local mill, actually my family actually owned the mill, um, in the early 19th century or to 20th century, and they were logging these big trees that they had gotten out of Greenbrier Swamp, and they hit a spike in this big tree. The spike was buried deep into this tree, and when they hit that spike, the whole mill stopped, right, and went back to try to figure out where that tree had come from because they thought, you know, this tree marked that gold or that treasure that these people had buried in Greenbrier Swamp. And when they hit the spike, you know, they knew that they, you know, that that was it. A treasure like Yeah, yeah. But I they never could it. find it. They went back and just, mm. ne- you know, never could so find it. So I interviewed two episodes ago, I interviewed a pirate historian mm-hmm. and um, he told a story about Blackbeard's treasure down in Virginia Beach, yep. and no one can find it. There's, it's supposedly in the dunes at Cape Henry. I think it's called Cape Henry. Right. And no one can find it, and that's the whole theme. I then read, I have a book of Virginia folklore, and it talked about the, the theme of treasure lore is that the treasure is never found. Mm-hmm. So it's so cool that you are, you know, have... You are directly inside of one of those folk tales. Yeah, it is. And the thing of it is, you know, that this this tale, um, you know, people talk about that. I mean, it's it's I say it's documented. You know, the story is documented. If you read books in Dorchester County, that's one of those things that you know they talk about. And what really helps, I think, you know, legitimize that story. You know, it's one thing about Big Liz walking around with her head in her hand and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, even though it's, you know, a lot of people believe it's true. Um, you know, I have African-American friends and white folks to saying that just will not go in Greenbrier Swamp. Mm-hmm. They're just not going to do it. Um, you know, Big Liz walking around. I mean, that's one thing. But when you have a story about, um, you know, about treasure being buried, right, and, you know, schooners come up and down these rivers back then frequently. And then, you know, they drive a spike in a tree. And then, you know, some 75 years later or 100 years later, this mill that is milling timber from this area of Greenbrier Swamp hits this, tr- cuts this tree and draw- cuts into the spike, right? It's like, man, is that story true, Right. You know, so it, it legitimizes it. You so know how I mean? many treasure hunters have gone over there? I'm sure that um, over the years that there has been, you know, to be honest with you, I've thought about it myself, right? <clears throat> hey, but, call me up. I'll yeah, come right, with you just exactly, for the adventure. Right. You know, it's it's pretty cool. You know, what reminds me, what this is, you might find this pretty interesting. So my grandparents, my mother's from Belgium, uh, French-speaking Belgium. So um, every summer, me and my sister, my mom, and my dad would go to Belgium in the little countryside 
in uh, Stumont was the town that they lived in. It's a little river valley and um, pretty old house. I'm not sure when, a very beautiful stone house. Um, but there's a family story that in the 70s, my uncle and grandfather were cutting down some trees. I don't know what for. And they kept um, dulling the blades of their saws. And they're like, what the hell? What the hell? And finally, they got the tree down and it was completely filled with bullets from battle during World War II. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. incredible. I've got one. That story. <laughs> and look, so, and this, it's the, this is the weirdest thing. I mean, it's just, I can't even get my head around it, Harley. But we, you know, we burn wood here, right? So, um, you know, we had gotten some wood and we're not sure, you know, just exactly where we had gotten it from. But anyway, um, periodically you have to clean the ashes out. So I was, um, had vacuumed the ashes up and was outside dumping them. And this ring was in there. Okay. And I thought, well, that is really weird that this ring is in these, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, the kids, somebody throw it in there. It was one that I had never seen. So, you know, then I was intrigued and I dug through the ashes and there were two or three rings and a couple bracelets. And I took them to the, now they weren't like, they didn't have stones, but the jeweler said, you know, they're definitely very, very old pieces of jewelry, right? And how they ended up in my fireplace, you know, it's like, how did that jewelry, so it ended up in a tree somehow. So, you know, did somebody hide it there? Did somebody, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. It's yeah, just, maybe they cut holes in the tree and plugged them. Yeah, I mean, it Plugged could be. It in you there just and let it grow back in. Yeah, you, you just don't know. And my whole family, I mean, we all were my just God. looked at it in amazement. You know, it's like, did you did you throw something in the, you know, to fire the kids? But my it wasn't God. because it was nothing anybody recognized, right? Mm -hmm. And like I said, it was two or three rings and a couple bracelets. And, you know, it was just, it was just baffling. You unreal. Know, how, how that happened. Just unreal, really. Um, is there any more folklore? Should we switch, go to another topic? Well, you know, uh, nothing I can think of right off, but, you know, folklore so, is abundant around here. So. God, I love that. Thank you for all this stuff. So do you know like, what your family in the 1668, do you know much about them? Yeah, yeah, actually I do. Um, you know, so they came over here. They're Welsh, right? So, um, you know, they um, come to the new country, you know, and they settled not far from here, actually. Um, in an area called Bishop's Head. So um, as a crow flies, it's probably, I don't know, probably not even 10 miles really. And like a lot of settlers early on when they came here, they um, were boat builders and they worked on the water, mm. you know, um, because that was something that people could, you could do that and you could, you know, generate income. You could also generate food, right? Uh, so they did that. And then some years Later, um, they moved right to this area that we're in right now, probably around 1780 or 1790. Mm. Um, they came here and they ended up being farmers. Mm. Um, so they were very successful with that. And mm. they ended up having, um, in 1877, they had about 5,000 acres. Mm. My great-great-grandfather had about 5,000 mm. acres of land, actually. Mm. And then when he died in 18... This is his house? Yeah. Mm. Yep. And uh, yeah, he lived here. And, you know, my, that was my great, great, and then my great, and my grandfather, they all lived here. So um, then he left all of his kids a farm, right? The rest of the farms were sold off to support his wife, you mm. know, who lived here. 
Um, and then, you know, my ancestors got this farm, which it was called the home farm, mm-hmm. because that's where he lived at. So they become successful farmers. And then um, in the 1930s, my family ended up selling the farmland mm-hmm. away from the farm because, you know, farming was a very tough industry to be in. You know, mm-hmm. it was very dirty and, you know, it wasn't pleasant to be a farmer. Mm-hmm. It was important, but it wasn't pleasant. Um, so, you know, my aunt was the first woman doctor in Dorchester County. Mm. Um, she was born here. So, you know, she got educated, um, in England, um, very prominent woman doctor. Um, and you know, then, um, my, uh, some other ancestors were business people and some of them, you know, whatever, not so much. Um, you know, so they got rid of the farmland. Um, the house ended up getting sold. Right. And then, when I came along, I started to try to rebuild all of that back mm-hmm. again. You know, now I'll never acquire the farmland because farmland is just, it's too, and I'm not a farmer. Mm-hmm. You know, but we got the house and, you know, we have a lot of family heirlooms, mm-hmm. you know, that were passed down through the generations. Plus, you know, my whole family knows, you know, I'm passionate about it. So, you know, I mean, I've got clocks that were in my family since the 1830s mm-hmm. and other items, you know. So, um, it's good to know about your family, you know, because mm. there's certainly, um, you know, there's a lot of very interesting things and some skeletons that you find. And, you mm. know, so I believe it's, it. it's all part Everybody. of it, right? Everybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, absolutely fascinating. Um, well, I think we've talked a lot about history and that's been really incredible and folklore, which I absolutely love. Um, maybe it would be because you own this kayak business, maybe it'd be pretty cool to just talk about the Blackwater refuge and talk about, you know, for people. So there are people listening to this that might be all over America. So Mm -hmm. maybe if we could talk more about nature, yeah, um, like some, you know, you know, right out here in your yard, you have these cypress trees, right? I see that the nubs are sticking out in your your little, in your little ditch, the nubs are sticking out. But, um, yeah, I guess let's talk a little bit about Blackwater. Yeah. So, you know, you, you have Blackwater, you have Blackwater Refuge, but, you know, you have Blackwater Adventures. You know, so Blackwater Adventures, um, that's our business. And, you know, just to touch briefly on that is that in about 2002, um, tourism become a, started to become an industry right around Down here. Down here. Yeah. Um, it wasn't so much before that, but re- really started generating that was the Hyatt Regency Chesapeake Bay Resort mm. that's on the Choptank River. They built here about 2002. So, you know, we thought, let's get us a couple kayaks, right, and a couple bikes, and we'll rent this stuff out. Um, my wife was a homemaker, so that's what we did. We went out and got a couple couple kayaks and some bicycles, and we operated out of the little country store over here. Um, mm. And we took people for tours on the water, you know, and she did guided tours and all that. And now, you know, it's blossomed to a business that we have about 50 kayaks and 30 or 40 bikes. And and you run it out of like an old tomato can? Yeah, and we, um, and now 2014, you know, the business had grown. So we switched from operating it out of the little country store, which couldn't accommodate that type of business. And we bought an old canning house, right, that um, that was on the Blackwater River that's adjacent to Blackwater Refuge. I mean, it was an ideal situation, ideal place. It's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, that business has, has grown. And the beauty of it is, too, is because of my family. You know, we're all very close. So it's literally a family-run business. Mm-hmm. You know, my son's 
my daughter, they operate it all day to day, day in and day out. You know, my wife, she does tour guiding, you know, when they need her, or, you know, at certain times and things. And, you know, I kind of run the, the background stuff of the business. So um, it's, you know, it's been very interesting. And we meet people from all over the world. I mean, it's just phenomenal, you know. Yeah, so I took out a kayak for an hour. Yeah. And I got really close to the, an osprey well, on a nest. And, and look, eagles. I could hear the bald eagles. Yeah. I couldn't see them. There's eagles nest, you know, there's osprey, there's otters. I mean, the wildlife oh, around here is just totally abundant, right? And, um, you know, a lot of people like to do these guided tours because, you know, the, our guides, which is essentially our family. We have some other guides as well. Um, but, you know, they all basically have a, on our first name basis with the local eagle population. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, you know, they can take you out and show you eagles nests, you know, the baby eagles. And, you know, sometimes the eagles will show off a little bit for you, mm-hmm. right? You know, the osprey and just all of that stuff. And it's, it's an incredible, you know, it's an incredible area. And the thing of it is with Dorchester County, Landmass wise, Dorchester County is the biggest county in the state of Maryland. That's what Tom Horton was saying. Yes, landmass. But it's flooding. It's well, drowning. Yeah, but the beauty of it is it's the least populated, hmm. right? So for people per square mile or square foot, whatever however you want to measure it, you know, we live in an area that is still um, you know, basically untouched, right? Um, and, um, you know, it's just a treasure, really. Mm. It's a true, true treasure to mm. be here. You know, it's, I just, you know, I, I wouldn't go anywhere else, quite mm. honestly. No, yeah. well, clearly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you guys got muskrats still? A good oh, absolutely. muskrat population? Yeah. Yeah. yeah people you- still kill them, you know, trap them and mm-hmm. eat them. You know, yeah. I don't eat them myself. Uh, my son likes muskrat. I've yeah. eaten the two that I've caught. I ate and yeah. they're absolutely delicious. Yeah. My, my girlfriend is from New Zealand. So she, in New Zealand, they do uh, pies a lot, like yep. meat pies. Mm-hmm. So we did mini muskrat meat pies. Absolutely delicious. Well, you're a good man because I'm not, <laughs> I can't get past the look, right? Because when you strip that little skin off that muskrat, I mean, it literally looks pretty rough. So. Um, but you know, but you love people either love them or they don't, right? Yeah. We've been, yeah, we eat a lot of wild game. Yeah. We eat a lot of beavers. I do some beaver trapping. We've eaten raccoon, have never eaten a possum. Um, snapping turtles, one of the best things oh, I've ever eaten. Snapping turtles. That's that's a that's a delicacy around here, man. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, I'm trying to get more into fishing and I actually built an eel pot. I'm gonna try to catch an eel. Yep. Do yep. a little well, bit you of can that. Get eels. The big thing here now are these snakehead fish. Because they're invasive. Yeah, they're invasive, and they are literally invading, right? Mm. I mean, I have this pond and stuff out here, and a friend of mine was just here prior to you getting here, and um, we don't, uh, you know, people, they were so intrigued by these snakehead fishing, you know, that you would look out and you would have people just out in your pond on your land Mm. fishing. So we we had to kind of put an end to that because, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you can't allow that because, you know, it'd be we'd be bombarded, but we do allow a few people to, to do it. And, you know, he caught, I mean, a great big snakehead fish and mm. people love them, right? Mm. You know, to eat. To eat. Oh, great. Oh, absolutely. It's always great when an invasive can be uh, consumed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's, uh, you know, people, I mean, you can go now to the, mm. in town to the local seafood market and mm. buy filet snakehead maybe yeah. i'll do that for my campfire dinner tonight yeah i mean people love them man it's you know so a hunt? real white meat 
Do you hunt and fish still? Yeah, oh yeah, we all hunt. Not not so much with me anymore. Hmm. Um, you know, might duck hunt a little bit, but my kids they live they live for that. Hmm. Um, you know, they hunt deer hunt. They hunt just sick of deer, um, which is also an invasive deer for yeah. this area. Um, but the meat is uh, is much better. Yeah, the sick of deer. I've seen it on some famous hunting shows like yeah. Meat Eater. Yeah, they've taught they've done a whole episode in in Delmarva. But yeah, it's a deer that got dropped off by a japanese a high high uh yeah, society japanese guy yeah and he dropped a bunch off here like a hundred years ago or something yeah on james island they say so um and they're yeah. small deer yeah they're small and um you know they're they're in the marsh right so they're not like the whitetail you know you can see them out in the fields and in the in the higher lands the sicker deer they're a lowland deer mm. um so my kids, they hunt them. They only hunt with bows, right? They don't use guns. Um, they like to, you know, the challenge of the bow hunting. Um, so, and, you know, they duck hunt and they do the whole gamut, you know. So, um, you know, they do literally live off of the land to the degree that you can in modern times. So. so something I really like, I don't know if this will be a conversation point, but so, you know, I just interviewed um, Captain Wade Murphy and so he is oyster dredging on a 135-year-old ship. Right. I think it was built in 1886. So, you know. It's a historical landmark. Oh, yeah. It says it on the yeah, side. Yeah. <clears throat> but someone like him, someone I think like you, someone like me, I love historical stuff. Mm -hmm. And like all of my hunting guns, if I had more money, they'd be even older than they are. But, you know, for what I can afford, all my guns are old vintage guns. Yep. And, um, you know, my shotgun is 90 years old. And so when I shoot a squirrel with it or something, or I killed, I've killed a tur turkey, a mm -hmm. big tom turkey yeah. this season with a 90 year old gun. To me, that's like the neatest thing on earth. Yeah. So do you, have you ever used any old family heirlooms? We have a lot of, well, I don't say a lot, but we have several old guns hmm. um you know actually my kids you know when it, for christmas and they're not kids anymore they're adults but you know um they never wanted video games and all that kind of stuff we just were never about all that you know they would want you know this 1910 winchester rifle or you know that kind <laughs> of stuff you know um their first bow was you know literally a you know a recurve or whatever kind of bow you know that you mm. it's not wasn't one of these high tension bows that you've seen now um so yeah absolutely we do all that the problem now though is is that with the shot and the loads now you it's it's mm, you'll damage them you'll, they'll damage them and you know you could hurt yourself by doing that mm, blow them up yeah blow so, the barrel up. yeah mm. so now you know using the older guns for hunting mm. is really becoming you know much more difficult now because mm. you can't hardly get shot you can't use lead right for hunting anymore mm -hmm. um and you can only get steel and the steel shot or it's just too much too much impact to those barrels so mm. it's unfortunate because you know using the old guns is part of the excitement so cool. of it really yeah 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 i just got a muzzle loader it's a replica yeah it's a replica of a late 1800s um percussion cap yeah but just uh, i have not pulled the trigger on an animal with it yet because i just got it last season mm -hmm. but uh it's just so neat to do the whole loading it through yeah, the barrel. Now they do have modern, you know, muzzle loaders mm -hmm. um, that they do mu some muzzle loading with occasionally, mm -hmm. you know, but um, they mainly stick I see in your house you have a bunch of beautiful old muzzle loader. Yeah. What look like that. I like the, you know, flint locks and stuff. Yeah. It's the, you hanging know, over it's the history. fireplace. I'm a, I love history. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So um, I don't think that we 
have anything in our house other than the mattresses on our bed that we bought from a furniture store, <laughs> really, you know. Um, so, and I'm lucky because my wife is as passionate about that as I am. So, mm-hmm. you know, and my kids, you know, my, I have my son up the road, his house is a post and bean house. Mm. Um, very early, early, early 19th century house. Um, you know, so sits back in the woods. I mean, it's just awesome. My what is son, post and beam? Cause I know <laughs> log and chink. I know that's a, well, you've style. seen the, the beams and stuff in my den here, yes. right? Well, his whole house is like that, mm. right? <clears throat> so his whole house is wood. Um, you know, you got the post and the beams okay, and okay. you know, all that. It's like a, it's not a log cabin because it has siding, right? It's the siding isn't logs, but essentially, mm. you know, that's what it is. My other son, you know, he, goes right up the road and his house is a 19th century house. Um, my daughter's house is a 19th century house. So our whole family is, mm-hmm. you know. Steeped in it. Yeah, steeped in now, it. Now, I guess, because um, we've talked about it a lot, and I guess we can kind of wrap it up, but um, do you know anything about, since we've talked about your history, we've talked about, um, you know, slave history, African-American history here, do you know anything about the Native Americans when, you're, when your family showed up and 1668, do you know who was here? Uh, yeah. Which tribes? Yeah, there, I mean, there were the Nanakotes. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Algonquin, um, you know, Chickamacomico, there were several tribes. The Algonquin really would have been the primary um, tribe. And um, actually, I'm not sure that you're even aware of, but the last, un, it's unfortunate, but the last reservation in Maryland was actually 1790, and it was in Dorchester County. Mm. Um, you know, so the lands that the Hyatt is on and that whole ridge of the Choptank River, mm. um, you know, that, that was all Indian mm. Indian territory. You know, the Indians lived here. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of Native American people still here. Mm. Um, you know, they've been intermarried and things like that, but, you know, they still claim their history. Um, you know, we still have powwows and things mm. like that. Um, you, you know, mentioned your wife. Is, yeah, my wife, history? you know, her, um, her <clears throat> several generations back, um, was a Nassau Waywash Indian, mm. um, down from Elliott's Island way. Mm. So, you know, um, Native Americans were very prevalent and, you know, I think that, um, you know, as the settlers came here, right. Those, you know, um, the natives and the settlers, you know, they intertwine together. You Mm. know what I mean? Um, You know, because in the south part of the county where people originally settled, you know, there was a lot of Native Americans Mm. down there. Um, So a lot of families around here have Native American in Mm. their background, Mm. you know, in their genealogy. Where they must have mainly been, I'm just making this up, but they must have mainly been fishing cultures, all those tribes? definitely, yeah. Okay. Yep. Fascinating. Yep. Fascinating. I mean, you can still, to this day, um, and, you know, we, you know, I've got an abundance of, like, arrowheads and hatchetheads and stuff like that that you still pick up randomly. Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, we were out, you know, it's been a couple years back, but right in the back here, you know, mm. and looked down, picked up an arrowhead. Mm. You know, that stuff is, it's, wow. yeah, a lot of it now has, you know, has been hunted. Um, when the fields now are no-till type of crops, mm. right? So they're not working them up. Um, so a lot of the ground, you know, uh, artifact hunters have found, you know, most of the stuff that's prevalent, but there's still a lot of that here. You mm. know, I mean, Native Americans, obviously, they were here for thousands of years. So mm-hmm. Fascinating. Do you know anything about them, um, their culture regarding, like, um, if they were doing any agriculture or, or if they— 
if their house structures or yeah so they lived in like these um you know the part that i know about they would mm-hmm. live in these um these thrash huts mm. right um you know that was kind of what their drawings um were like there's actually a property it's called hansel and mm. it's in vienna and that's where one of the last reservations were in the mm. state of maryland and um they've recreated a native american village um there was a guy by the name mm, of dan cool. abbott you know he um he's from dorchester county he now works for historic williamsburg um doing a lot of their um, recreations and reenactments and stuff of native american history i mean when you see dan you would i mean it's just like seeing somebody from you know 500 years ago or whatever and he helped Hansel recreate this Native American village mm. using the original techniques. Um, and they used, um, the only thing that they did, one thing different is be, because of the availability of, um, you know, of, of, of Phragmites, mm-hmm. which was not here then. That's again, that's an evasive yeah. weed. They did use a lot of frag um, instead of some of the other tall marshes, you know, because frag is just everywhere. It's a huge, tall, invasive Yes, very grass. invasive. Yeah, and it's very easy to get. And it totally replicated what they would have used back in the day, except it was just, it's everywhere. So you could get it so much easier than, you know, the native grasses. Yeah, that's fascinating. My landlady is, um, she has ancestry going back to Chief Powhatan. Mm-hmm. And so her tribe is... Um, the Padawamek, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to have maybe someone from her tribe for an episode because yeah. I would love to hear um, that historical perspective about the Chesapeake Bay. But, you know, so they're in Virginia yep. on the western side. Yeah. But one of the coolest things about the Padawamek culture were the um, traditional eel pots, mm-hmm. these woven pots, these right. cylindrical, few feet long uh, eel traps. Yeah. They're just totally neat. Well, I can tell you that that style of eel, tra- I have some here actually wow um three or four of them you know and they're woven they're like a split oak woven eel trap um and you know when people came here they adopted that type of eel trap you know Mm -hmm. now now they're all wire that type of stuff you Mm -hmm. know um but you know up until probably 100 years ago you know europeans here still use that same exact type Mm -hmm. of eel trap Mm -hmm. you know that they adopted from the native americans so Mm -hmm. yeah it's pretty cool i'm i made one um, out of wire, mm-hmm. like scraps around my house. Yep. I looked at a YouTube video, made one. Yep. I'm going to show it to you because I want to see if you think the throat, the hole. Is well, the- I'll show you one that's a real one and you wow. can compare yours. How old is that yours? But we've got several of them. You know, some of them are pretty old. So wow. not Native American, you know, they're not that old, but they're the same, yeah. the same exact design. So tonight, because I'm camping again in the state park, yeah. I'm going to drop the pot and see if I catch an eel in the morning yeah. and drive home and cook yeah. it up. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But yeah, I can't yeah. wait to Good look Good luck at that. on that. <laughs> I, I don't want to share it with you particularly, but you know. <laughs> um, well, you yeah, know, we've eaten all sorts of weird stuff and I know it's a delicacy in yeah. lots of places. Yeah. Um, well, hey, what's a delicacy in one place, you know, is shot upon, you know, probably the other. So my wife has kind of ruined me, you know, I've gotten to be, you know, meat and potatoes kind mm. of person, right? Mm. So, um, you know, but we love the land. We eat from the land as well, but mm. not quite eating eels and that type of stuff yet. So, well, I see someone's doing a little garden work outside. Yeah. Maybe that's our sign to kind of wrap it up. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, it's been great. It's been great talking to I you. I appreciate this. Yeah. This was a shorter one, but it was fast paced and absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I found good. all of that incredible. Um, fun, just to wrap it up, 
just tell where people, if anyone's in this area, they're on the Eastern shore, they want to come kayaking with your business. Do you want to just tell about a link or something? Yeah, absolutely. Blackwater adventures, um, MD.com. You know, um, if you just Google that, um, kayaking in Dorchester County, Maryland, um, Blackwater Adventures will pop up and I can guarantee you that it will be an experience that you will not forget. It's <laughs> awesome. You know, awesome. it truly is. Awesome. Well, thank you. I hope we can come on one of those, me and my girlfriend come on one of the historical yeah, tours. Absolutely. Love to have you.